Good morning, church. Well, it's an honor to be standing here before you this morning to bring the word of the Lord. I just want to give thanks again to Pastor Reggie for that invitation and for that opportunity. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you can, to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 9. Isaiah, chapter 9. Today marks the first day of Advent, uh, which is a season of heart preparation for Christmas. And the word Advent is really just an elegant way of saying arrival, appearing, or coming. It is the celebration of that first coming of Christ uh, in human flesh. And it's also the eager anticipation of his return. Uh, he is the source of true hope, of peace, of joy, and of love. And most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the accounts of the, the starry sky, the wise men bearing gifts, and the shepherds in the field who heard the angelic choir singing. And all of these are actually part of the surrounding beauty of the coming of Christ. But what makes Advent so great is that the Son of God came as a child to redeem lost sinners from the grip of darkness. That's actually what makes Advent so great. He died on that cross in our place, and rose again on the third day. He did this not for the good, but for rebels. He did this for rebels who, by his grace, believe in him, trust in him, and turn from sin. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And this is good news for those who follow Christ, but it's bad news for those who do not. But this is nevertheless the message that we proclaim because it is only through Christ that man can be reconciled to God. So we speak of his judgment and his mercy, his wrath and his grace of damnation and salvation, of warning and of promise. And today I want to show you from the scriptures that there is hope available even for those who find themselves in a place of deep darkness. The source of that hope is the grace of God in Christ. A grace that triumphs over our failures because it's only by his grace that we can hope in him. The title of my message this morning is Hope Shines in the Darkness. And now let's uh, turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, and I'd ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, beginning at verse 1, it says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that this is a living word, Lord, that you intend to bless us even this morning through your word. Lord, I, I thank you for the living hope that we have in you. And I thank you, Lord, that hope shines brightly in darkness. And Lord, if it were not so, where would we be? But we thank you for this, and we ask now that you would be glorified even in the preaching of this word. We give you praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, one of the narrative techniques uh, used frequently in uh, literature, in, in film, or in television is that of the plot twist. A plot twist, according to uh, the website Literary Terms, is an unsuspected occurrence of, or turn of events in the story that completely changes the direction or outcome of the plot from the direction it was likely to go. Plot twists are designed to disrupt things in a story that the audience thinks they already know or have figured out. And it goes on to say, the author achieves this twisting of the plot by providing a huge shock or surprise. One that is either completely unexpected or was perhaps foreshadowed through earlier details or events. That is, that's amazing. I, I, uh, I'll submit to you that the plot twist originated with God. He is the ultimate plot twister. And what Isaiah announced in this chapter that we just read is a prophecy of a coming plot twist. A plot twist that although Isaiah is announcing ahead of time will come as a surprise for many when it takes place. It's an announcement of God's surprising plan of grace and deliverance for his rebellious people. One that includes the promise of a child, a son, a son who would be king and bring everlasting peace. He would shine the light of hope on those sitting in darkness. And this child would also be God, this is an astounding prophecy. It was written about 700 years before Christ came to this world. It was written by Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah uh, was, his name means the Lord is my salvation. 
And he lived in Jerusalem, and God had called him to prophesy in Judah. Now, Peter, the Apostle Peter, gives us some insight into how and what the prophets of the Old Testament thought they were, uh, what they were thinking when they gave us these, these prophecies. And he writes in 1 Peter uh, 1, 10 to 12, he says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so even though the prophets searched and inquired diligently and carefully, they didn't really have the, the high-def version of the things they were prophesying. They didn't have all the details. Um, God still spoke through them and had his own intentions for sure. But this is the dynamic that we're dealing with. And the thing about this prophecy of a, of a child being born, about light coming into the darkness, is that it's sandwiched between prophecies of coming judgment for Israel and Judah because of their sinful rebellion against God. God's coming judgment was going to reduce them to just a small remnant before they would experience the coming grace. You see, God had given his people every reason to trust him. Uh, and, and, and to follow him and to obey him. But, but they, in large part, rejected him. And instead, they put their trust in the wrong things. They trusted in other kings instead of God. They trusted in other gods. They, they trusted in themselves. And they trusted in their unfaithful leaders. So God decreed that he was going to purify for himself a remnant. A remnant from his apostate people through judgment. And the instrument of his judgment would be Assyria. Whom he would use as, the Bible says, as an axe. To cut down the rotten tree that was Israel. Israel would be conquered. And its people would be scattered and exiled by the Assyrians. Judah would also be punished by the Assyrians. And eventually they would get exiled by the Babylonians. Both houses would experience what Isaiah called the gloom and deep darkness of exile. <clears throat> but the good news is that God did not intend to leave them there. His purpose, even in his judgment, was righteous and redemptive. In this judgment, there would be grace. He would preserve a remnant that would return. And from this stump, I got a story about a stump I'll tell you later. From this stump, a branch would sprout bearing the fruit of Christ. The light of the world would be born from their seed 
and enter their darkness to bring deliverance. What a plot twist that is. And so the question for the loyal disciples of God, including Isaiah and his, and his family and those who truly walked after God, would be this. <clears throat> would they trust the wisdom of God's sovereign plan? Would they trust his purging judgment of Israel and Judah? Would they trust the promise of a future Messiah King? And can they still hope in him through the darkness all around? You know, and to a, and to a great extent, these questions are just as relevant for you and I today. You know, even after seeing the light of the gospel from this side of the cross, perhaps you still get pressed with the question, if I put my trust in God, will he save me? Will he deliver me? We're tempted to crave worldly security and put our trust in in politics or, or government more than God. We're tempted to love other things in this world above God. Instead of worshiping in spirit and truth, do we sometimes bring him outward religion, hiding an empty heart and a careless life? Or when troubling news comes, do we lean first on our own understanding instead of seeking God in prayer and in his word? Or when we go through dark nights of the soul, do we wonder, can I ever hope in him again? But what does God say to us through this text? That's the question I want to pose for us. What's the main point? How can we apply this text, which is a prophecy that has already been fulfilled? How can we apply it to ourselves? And I want to submit to you at least one key takeaway. Since Christ is the source of hope, we can hope in him even in times of darkness. Let me say that again. Since Christ is the source of hope, we can hope in him even in times of darkness. Now, what is hope? Well, people often use the term hope to refer to something that may or may not happen. I hope I get that job. I hope there's no traffic. I hope our team wins. Or just, I hope so. Well, that's more like, that's more like wishing for something that's uncertain. It has an element of doubt in it. But <clears throat> true hope is not merely wishful thinking. The biblical idea of hope is a confident expectation of the good things that God has promised. It's based on a sure foundation. And that sure foundation is God himself and his character. God is a sure foundation. He is a rock. He is a strong tower. He is a refuge. And we don't see the things that we hope for because they're in the future. But we can eagerly wait for them. That's why David could say in Psalm 25, 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Since God is good, 
His promises are also good. Therefore, hope also desires that promise that God has given. Paul in Romans 8.23, he described hope both in terms of eager waiting and a patient waiting. You got to put those two together. There needs to be an eagerness about it. And at the same time, there's a patience about it. So hope is an eager and patient waiting for the good things that God has promised. And since Christ is the source of hope, we can hope in him even in times of darkness. And perhaps you're thinking, I hear you that, that hope is found in Christ, but where specifically and how? Well, I'd like to submit a few things to you from our text this morning. Number one, hope reaches dark places. Look with me in verse 1 of Isaiah 9. Isaiah is writing of the future as if it had already come to pass. He says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Mind you, this anguish, the fullness of it, has not even occurred when he writes this. And now the previous chapter, obviously this is starting with a but, so we have to kind of go back. The previous chapter ends like this in Isaiah 8.22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So there was a judgment that had been pronounced for Israel. And as, as you read the ending of chapter 8, it feels like it's bringing you to a place of, of despair or a hopelessness for Israel. And then the next word comes in chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And that no gloom is ever again. There will be no gloom ever again for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the sons of Jacob, and they became tribes, and then this was the land that was apportioned to those tribes in the northern part of Israel. And he continues, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So there's a contrast being described here. There's a, there's a movement. Formerly there was gloom, and in the end there will be glory. Gloom to glory. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That northern part of Israel was in a region called Galilee, which is also known as Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles because they had a large population of pagan Gentiles. And one reason for that was its geographical location. It, it was a, a prime target. When, when armies, foreign armies would invade, uh, they were the first to get attacked and even repopulated. And the other reason was because back in the book of Judges, uh, these tribes of Jacob did not fully drive out the Canaanite people and their pagan influences as God had told them to do. And that's why you have a land now called Galilee 
of the nations in our text. Zebulun and Naphtali was actually where Assyria would begin its conquest of Israel, as recorded in, in 2 Kings 15. And so because the land was in anguish, darkness, and gloom, we have an expectation coming. It later would gain this reputation to the point where some would say, can anything good even come from that area? How does this place go from gloom to glory? Well, it's precisely the point where Jesus decided to begin his ministry. And Matthew quotes from this portion of Isaiah in Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17, he says this about Jesus. Now, when he, meaning Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, which, by the way, was also in that region, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, which should remind us of another text, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. <clears throat> so if you want to be part of the light instead of the gloom, instead of the darkness, instead of the anguish, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So light came to the dark places of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, a place of Jews and Gentiles. This is where Jesus began his ministry. Christ enters the places of gloom to bring glory. The places of darkness to bring light. And since Christ, who is the light, is the source of hope, we can hope in him even in those dark places. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Zebulun and Naphtali were the first to see the great light. But that didn't mean that they all embraced it. That didn't mean that they all understood. That didn't mean that they all loved the light. Why? Why is that? Well, John 3.19 tells us why. John says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the fallen condition of man. Apart from him, we hate the light. Because we actually love our sin better. We, we prefer to stay in it. But we can't embrace our sin and love the light at the same time. Because the light exposes our sin, and our need for covering. God calls us to trust in him and to turn from our sin. We're not to live as if we are our own, as if we belong to ourselves. We, we must believe and turn 
from sin to Christ. But how do we do that if our inclination is towards sin? We need to be born again. Number two, hope is found in the transforming grace of regeneration. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone see it. Without a new birth, you're lost in your sin. If we live our lives rejecting God, we will perish. You must believe and turn from your sin. But you cannot do that on your own. That's the dilemma. You need to be brought from death to life by a sovereign act of God's grace. You need a new birth. And you need the gift of saving faith. This is the transforming grace of regeneration. This is the gift of God. In John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It continues. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I just changed the dynamic right there. This is the powerful, transforming, sovereign grace of regeneration. It's not an act of the will of man but of the will of God. I can't hope in his promises because of anything in me, but I can hope in his promises because of his divine grace, his power, his initiative, his love. Number three, hope is found in multiplication of the nation. Well, verse 3 in our text of Isaiah chapter 9 says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. How has he multiplied the nation? Well, remember, one of the promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17:5 he said to him this no longer shall your name be called Abram but your name shall be Abraham for i have made you the father of a multitude of nations i have made you a father of a multitude of nations. In other words, the people of Israel are in some way going to simply become a multitude of nations. They will be the means for the entry of the Gentiles into salvation by virtue of who they become. And this is represented to Abram with his own name changing from Abram to Abraham. There's an addition of letters to his name. And with that addition of letters, an increase in representation to include the nations. Do you see that? I'll give you more. John 10 16 says this, this is Jesus, and I have other sheep that are not of this flock. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. How many flocks? One. This is divine multiplication. This nation, this, this fold beyond ethnic Israel, So that what started as a remnant has become what Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 to 10 describe as a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hallelujah. God multiplies the nation by the inclusion of other nations. And the result is that her joy is multiplied. Her joy is multiplied by the spreading of his light, of the light of Christ and his grace to the whole world. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. In other words, plenteous provision. There is a joy that comes from plenteous provision. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. In other words, not only a joy when there's plenteous provision, but a joy when there's victory. And, and, and these are just ways of describing that joy. There is provision and victory in the multiplication of the nation. And so I can rejoice that the wall of hostility between peoples is removed. Do you see that? Masterful plan of God. Number four, hope is found in the joy that God sets captives free. Verses four to seven express the reasons for the joy and hope of verse three. Verse four says, for the yoke of his burden." And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. <laughs> Since the days of Egypt, because of Israel's rebellion, they've had a, a history of being under the yoke of oppression and slavery. Even when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, the Assyrians were about to conquer them and subject them as well. And God many times granted deliverances from these oppressors. They would cry out to him, and in his grace, he would do that. And that's a, a picture of really the, the spiritual deliverance that would be coming. But, but why as on the day of Midian? Now, I know... Those who know this account know why. <laughs> well, in the time of the judges, the, the Midianites had oppressed Israel uh, for years. And, and Israel cried out to God. And, and God raised an unlikely hero in Gideon to defeat the Midianite army of 135,000 soldiers with just 300 men, get this, breaking jars, blowing trumpets, and holding up torches at night. That's how God did it. And the point of it being done in that way was that there would be absolutely no room for human glory. 
It wasn't by Israel's army or by Israel's might. They wouldn't be able to have even an angle to say, well, but you know, we had some strong fighters in the front. You know, that kind of helped. It was done in such an odd way on purpose so that it would be marked as, now you know no one else could do that but God. Well, that's how God did it. And that's why when we look at verse 4, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. God did it in such a way that everyone would know only the Lord could do this salvation. Only the Lord. He just told me to hold up some torches, to bang out some jars, and to blow trumpets. What does that have to do with fighting? And it was just like, I, you know, one commentator said it was an audacious bluff. I like that because really what ended up happening was the Midianite army got confused and they began killing each other. They self-destructed. They, they, it was done. So that yoke, that staff, that rod of oppression in verse 4 also signified the spiritual enemies of all of God's people. Satan, sin, and death. Those are enemies that you and I cannot defeat on our own. We, we cannot. Hence, Midian. Remember. Freedom from those instruments of oppression can only come from God alone. Not ourselves. Just as on the day of Midian. God breaks the yoke. God breaks the staff. God breaks the rod. And Luke 4 records that Jesus went into the synagogue and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah the following things. In verse 18, it says, he writes, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Part of Christ's mission was to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set free the oppressed. So that means that you and I can have a confident expectation that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And, and if this is true in your life, then you don't need to live like you're still in slavery. Because it's for freedom that he has set you free. And hope is found in the joy that Christ sets captives free indeed. He sets them free indeed. Number five, hope is found in the joy that God will end all conflict. It says every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now only God will defeat all of our spiritual enemies, of course. But not only would he, will he do that, he's going to put an end to all conflict once and for all. One commentator put it this way, every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. If you look at the news today, you see this war in Ukraine. It's just one example of the kind of devastation that human beings can inflict on one another. The defeat of all of our spiritual enemies, which will, will be a final defeat of evil itself, means a day is coming when God will end every kind of violence and conflict imaginable. Every kind of animosity will be brought to an end. Praise God. Isaiah 2.4 says this, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. 
There's an old African-American spiritual song with, uh, with roots that go back to before the Civil War, but it was first published in 1918, and it's called Down by the Riverside. Maybe some of you have heard it. It's also known as Ain't Gonna Study War No More and Gonna Lay Down My Burden. It's got a very simple but yet profound lyrics, and it comes from Isaiah 2, 4. And it just says, I'm not going to sing it. I'll, I'll spare us from that, but <clears throat> going to lay down my burden down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Going to lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside. Ain't going to study war no more. And it repeats it three times. I ain't going to study war no more. Three times. And other stanzas start with, going to lay down my heavy load. Going to stick my sword in the golden sand. Going to shake hands with every man. Going to try on my long white robe. Going to talk with the Prince of Peace. Going to shake hands around the world. Down by the riverside. I ain't going to study war no more. Well, how does a promise like this of the end of all hostilities give us hope for today? Maybe you're thinking, well, I mean, it's going to be good when people stop killing each other. But, you know, beyond that, I'm not sure what kind of hope I can derive from this for now. But I think this is more important than what you can imagine. Remember, hope is a confident expectation or an eager waiting and even a desiring of the good things that God has promised. Sinful conflict comes from pride, selfishness, envy, and things like that. Let me ask you, do you study war at home? Do you study war in your marriage? Do you study war with your kids, with your parents? Are you studying war in your place of employment, with your coworkers, with other believers? Are you studying war? Set your hope on the promise that God will end all hostilities, that you may resist them even more now in your own life. Just the knowledge that this kind of thing is going to come to an end can shine a light of hope that will make me just hate this present conflict. And if you find yourself needing to endure unavoidable hostility, well, let this promise that an end is coming to all human oppression give you the grace to wait patiently and eagerly for that day. Number six, hope is found in an unlikely child and his kingdom. I know we're at the end. Uh, we often hear about these last verses but I wanted to spend some time with, uh, on the lead up. Maybe you come Wednesday and we'll continue. But hope is found in an unlikely child and his kingdom. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be Wonderful, a wonderful counselor. He's going to be all wise, a mighty God, all powerful, an everlasting father, all caring, and the prince of peace. He's going to produce peace. Verse 7, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. <laughs> On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. And one of my favorite lines in this entire episode, in this entire passage that we've been reading, <laughs> is the very last line. If you want a reason for hope, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Boy, it's not just God, it's the zeal. I mean, it's God with all his energy. What a beautiful thing. 
I love what one commentator said, and he says this. That's the best part. When talking about the increase of his government and, and all these things, he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The empire of grace will forever expand. If we live by faith in him now, accepting his weakness as our strength and his folly as our wisdom, we will be there to enjoy his triumph forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say, this is the limit. Uh, he can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No. The finite will experience evermore wonderfully the infinite. And every new moment will be better than the last. <laughs> I just want to leave you with this ending. Number seven, hope is found in the zeal of the Lord. Hope is found in the zeal of the Lord. Are you living with hope? Do you have a confident expectation of the good things that God has promised? If not, look to Jesus. Look to the unlikely child. Turn from your sin. And if you already know Jesus and find that you've lost sight of the hope that's available to you, now listen to the apostle Peter's instruction. Worship team, you can come up. I forgot to call them earlier. Here's what Peter says in closing. This will be our closing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I can't think of better advice than that. Set your hope fully. Let's, would you stand so I can just pray for us. Father, we want to thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for how amazing it is that hope shines brightly in the darkness. That, Lord, we can have a confident expectation of the good things that you have promised because it's based on who you are and your character. That's a firm foundation. May we take this moment, Lord, to renew, Lord, th these realities that are ours. That because Jesus is the source of our hope, we can hope in him. We can hope in all of the glorious, gracious things that he has provided, even the deposit of them here, and their absolute fulfillment on the other side. Help us to walk with this kind of confidence, Lord, with this kind of eager, longing, and patient waiting. We thank you for how faithful you are. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen and amen.